Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You want to bring in Francis Donald? No, I want to go west to Chicago. Lisa, have you seen a soybean? And You know, you were a mountain girl years ago. Were you out in the fields looking at soybeans in the Midwest? I, I, I was not, but I lived in Fargo, North Dakota. Exactly. And there you are qualify. a lot of soybeans out there. I mean, I and was, now, folks, Farm Journal with Lisa Abramowitz. The Farm Journal was amazing. Was I that all great? about sheep and all about the, the price we did, of we the We did wool. Farm Journal every morning, and you learned about it. It was absolutely I mean, phenomenal. When we were kids. Yeah, John, sure. That's sure. Did. This sounds so exciting. This is exciting. <laughs> continue. Seriously. <laughs> East Coast people, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Manhattan, we don't understand that linkage, John, on this this phase one partial soybean uh, uh, item. I will give you this. U.S. farm bankruptcies surged 24% to the highest since 2011. This according to a Bloomberg yeah. News article yesterday, just to give you a sense of some of the strains Is here. Is that the morning stat from Lisa Rabbits? Do we get one every morning? It's Farm Journal. Francis Donald joining us now, Manulife yeah. Asset Management Head of Macroeconomic Strategy. Francis, your thoughts on the events of this morning so far? Well, this morning is just another example of the market having to digest long-term themes and what the next two to three years will look like. You know, I was sitting here watching futures drop as much as half a percent, and I thought, really, off of another trade headline? But it echoes exactly what the Fed told us yesterday, which is we shouldn't really be focused on what the next three months look like in the U.S. global economy for trade. We should be thinking about the long run. And the long run is looking more and more discouraging. Well, let's look out to 2020. The Chinese PMIs at overnight really weren't impressive at all. They were disappointing. Francis, over the last couple of weeks, the sentiment has shifted. Any reason to believe the data is set to follow anytime soon? I'm a bit worried there. You know, Chinese PMIs have been sub-50 for six months, and we were hoping for a reacceleration or what I call an L-shaped recovery, and everyone says L-shaped isn't a recovery at all. Let's call it a stabilization. But it looks like they might be double-dipping, and what's so critical here is that we are in the middle of what people have been calling our third mid-cycle slowdown. But what's yeah, so different okay. about this one versus 2013 and 2016 is that we don't have the China lifeline this time. In 2013, 2016, we were experiencing a global slowdown. China was easing aggressively infrastructure through the roof we don't have that component this time and that's what makes 2019 2020 so different i don't mean to pick on you francis but you and i are so up about the montreal canadians i I can understand that i can bring you down what is mid-cycle what is (laughs) what is mid-cycle Mid-cycle only means we haven't put gray bars across our charts and called for a technical recession. But I spend a lot of time thinking exactly about that, Tom, because yeah. as someone who's managing money, we have to recognize, you know, are your asset allocation decisions going to be substantially different if you're plus 0.1 or minus is, is, 0.1 on your GDP? They really shouldn't. So, under, you know, yeah. I agree. I, I think it's a little bit of kind of a, a way to fluff up what's really just called a substantial slowdown in growth. Do we blame the British, John? What is mid-cycle? I'm serious. Well, mid-cycle, it's a question for it, we're, we're reflecting on the mid-90s, late-90s scenario. Uh, I just wonder, Francis, whether a better parallel is the growth scare of 15-16. What is the better parallel right now to what we're experiencing at the moment? Well, 
we don't have a parallel because we have not experienced, at least since the 1930s, a period of such heightened trade tensions before. That makes this environment really, really difficult for policymakers like the Fed to compare against. You know, they've essentially told us yesterday that 75 basis points is a mid-cycle adjustment just because 1995 and 1998 were 75 basis points. But there's no way for us to know. That's a theoretical concept. My personal view is they have to go at least 25 basis points more. But critically, the messaging that we're getting is it doesn't really matter whether we're mid-cycle or not or recession or not. This Fed does not want to hike rates for a very long time. So we can sit here and talk about whether the next three to six months looks like whatever in the bond market. But longer term, I mean, this is, again, a buy bonds, wear diamonds type of situation. Francis, before we let you go, I'm really pleased to announce that Tom Keane and I do have an interview with the vice chairman of the Fed, Richard Clarida, tomorrow morning, 9.30 Eastern. Francis, if you have a question outstanding at the moment, what would that question be. I'd want to know, um, you know, when would you hike rates again and exactly how much inflation will it take? That's the most important question for all of markets. And it has to do with this three to five year outlook that will entirely define what asset allocation decisions look like for the next year. Francis, Francis. what's the inflation? What's the inflation? Is the inflation, you know, Cleveland Fed higher or is the inflation lower? It, it's a, a basket of all of the inflation okay. metrics that, that shows yeah. us that we're back up to a sustainable 2% okay. target. To me, this is the number one question, John. And Chairman Powell brought it up yesterday. Francis Donald, thank you. And thank you for writing that question for us. And because of that, we can thank Francis and say Eric Clement, Francis' husband, a fantastic artist. Check it out. Very, very cool stuff. You didn't know that, I did you? I did not you? know that. No. Really cool stuff. Very you should good. check it out. Bloomberg reports this morning that the Chinese uh, decidedly, the Chinese decidedly want tariff relief if we're going to move forward with the trade talks and that move the market. You get lucky sometimes. John Farrow and I did not know that Brendan Murray and our team would be reporting this important story, but we did decide to have on from the University of California at Berkeley, Barry Eichengreen, who joins us now from our London studios. He is iconic on international economics and the globalization of capital. Barry, I want you to take us to Beijing. What is the thought process of the Chinese as they deal with a mercantile American president? The Chinese know that um, Mr. Trump is a tariff man. I think they were never under any illusions that um, this administration was going to give up its aggressive trade policy as part of a, a, a far-reaching deal. Neither are they prepared to change their economic model under pressure. Bloomberg's news this morning is big, but it's not surprising. Uh, I, I think this uh, phase one deal was always about $50 billion worth of soybeans. It wasn't about uh, yeah. a change in the Chinese intellectual property rights regime. Well, then that we've got to move on as well. What would be an appropriate approach of Mr. Lighthizer to try to get his president and the Chinese together? Everybody needs to understand that progress, if there is to be progress, is going to have to be incremental. It will start with de-escalating tensions with some narrowly focused trade deals and that the bigger issues about forced technology transfer, industrial policy in China and so forth will take years to work out. And the 
constraint there is that nobody knows whether Mr. Trump is going to be in office for years. Well, Barry, beyond just that, Professor, do you think we'll ever work these issues out with the Chinese in the United States? We're going to have to work them out, I think, if we're um, going to return to a, a relatively robustly growing global economy. Uh, this ba- backdrop of trade tensions and geopolitical tensions is unsettling for financial markets, but more broadly, it's a negative for business investment. And uh, I can imagine it will become a negative for consumer confidence as well going forward. The approach will be in the hands of the politicians and the approach from the president is unlikely to change anytime soon, even if he gets a second term, even if he doesn't. Senator Warren put out her trade position in July of this year and arguably she's going to put more pressure on the Chinese than perhaps this president of the United States is currently. So, Professor, with that all in mind, I just wonder in one shape or another, subsequent administrations are going to continue putting pressure on China, aren't they? You're right, John, that there really has been a sea change in Washington, D.C., where both parties now view China as a geopolitical rival, and they understand that geopolitical power flows in part from economic power and leverage. The question is, what kind of tactics do you use in order to try to um, deal with the other side? Mr. Trump's tactics, as everyone knows, are disruptive, unpredictable, and I think we're learning again today, unproductive. Maybe a President Warren, uh, a Democratic president more broadly, will have a better match between her tactics and her objectives. So I'm wondering, Professor, Using the market as a tool of persuasion, President Trump coming out and trying to uh, get people optimistic about a deal. I'm wondering if China is trying to uh, get the market to go lower to give them some ammunition to show the consequences of not getting a deal. I don't believe that the Chinese are, are, are looking at how the market reacts uh, strategically from that point of view. I think they are simply trying to send a clear message that we are not going to buckle under pressure. If we offer concessions, we will uh, expect concessions, tariff rollbacks, uh, no more threats uh, that, uh, that, that we in Beijing will have to forswear any possibility of tariff retaliation in the future. And a recognition on the part of the United States that China has its own economic model. It's not going to abandon that under pressure. When they send that, the, that message, the markets react, but I don't think it's the market's reaction that they have foremost in mind. Barry Eichengreen, thank you so much with Berkeley, and of course the author of Golden Fetters and Globalizing Capital, among other worries. A wonderful new book out on populism as well that was uh, shockingly prescient. Shannon Cross, Cross Research, read this now on what we saw yesterday with Apple. Shannon, I was blown away by the rigor and the discreetness of the conference call. Shannon Cross has been on 4,812 conference calls, and I would suggest, Shannon, this one was different. There is a persistency and inertial force to growth at Apple. I think you just called me old, but yes, other than that... um 
there clearly was uh, strength in sort yeah. of across the board, um, you know, and, and they talked about incre- <clears throat> in the growth in the installed base and, um, you know, the the strength of, of the iPhones and how they're, they're you know, improving. And, and then when you look at what they're doing in services and a reacceleration to 18% growth in services across yeah. all geos, across all products, it was a recurring theme within the call. We got a lot of ideas here, but just one I'll bring up is they mentioned installment sales are geometric in growth. Is that nothing more, Shannon, than taking expensive toys and putting them on a monthly plan? And do you have to do your Excel spreadsheets differently because they're moving literally to being a monthly plan utility? Well, I mean, the the entire tech hardware industry is trying to move to as a service. So hardware as a service, service as a service, you know, everything going to a monthly recurring charge, whether it's for consumers or it's for um, corporate. So I think, you know, that trend is something that Apple is is working with. But Tim was very careful to say he didn't think this was a wholesale change in the model. I mean, they're they're clearly selling uh, devices, you know, on a onesie-twosie basis as well. Shannon, there's a hope that we get a real change to the hardware next year with 5G. And I'm just wondering whether that business, the iPhone business, can return to the kind of growth we've seen in years gone by anytime soon. Well, I think I think it'll be difficult. I mean, there's a lot of large numbers here, right, in terms yeah. of how big their installed base is and that. There's, there's clearly going to be a refresh. I think the refresh is actually positioned across this year and next year. If you look at the features that they added this year and you know, the demand they're seeing, which has clearly improved from last year. And then, obviously, with 5G, you'll probably see more um, promotions from the carriers to try to get subscribers. So, you know, I think it's more of a sort of a two-year process. Will they get to significant growth? I don't know. I'm not sure they know. It may be, you know, kind of lumpy. But I I think the trajectory of, you know, increased installed base is what's key to them because if you look at it, services is about 20% of their revenue but already 30% of their gross profit so the bias is the upside on, on gross profit dollars. Shannon, it's interesting to me that no one's talking about a new product that's going to generate the kind of growth that we saw from the iPhone or even the Apple Watch. There's no talk of that anymore. Now it's just services and installs and uh, the details that are not as exciting. Does that worry you at all? Uh, you know, I, again, because the margin differential is so much greater in services, I mean, I, I think some of the new pro- products they're talking about are things like Apple Card, which, you know, the, the CFO thinks could, could be, you know, meaningful over the next several years. So, um, yeah. you know, it has it changed, but it's hard to have big hits in product land. And I would point to AirPods. I mean, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but more and more and more people yeah. have AirPods. There's been a really good oh, really? reaction. Two hundred and fifty dollars ones that they launched yesterday. Two hundred and fifty dollars. Shut up. How how many have you got in the Keen household right now? It's the new Lego. You walk around and you step on the damn things. Oh my gosh! I'm going to start. I'm saying to people, pick them up, or you know, they're going to get thrown out. The Tom Keen household is very different to the other households across the country. Let me just tell you, your Lego, your Lego is a two hundred and fifty dollar pair of headphones. I didn't know they cost that much. I would massacre my children if they had two hundred and fifty. Gene Munster was on earlier. He's got a 350 view out there. It's not like a sell side target. But what's critical here is Gene Munster moves Apple towards a Procter and Gamble kind of valuation as a mature consumer entity. Can you go through that exercise, or is Apple forever going to be a product-driven AirPod company to you? No, I mean we started talking to investors a couple of years ago about the concept that 
you know, this is more and more recurring revenue, the ecosystem, um, just, you know, people tied to the brand. It, they, you know, they've looked at it. They trying to figure out, you know, at what point, you know, your, your recurring revenue and your profit matters from a multiple perspective. And I think you will start to see multiple expansion over time. Um, because Apple has become so dominant and, you know, they've they've expanded so much beyond just being a device company. Shannon, great to catch up with you this morning. Shannon yeah, Cross wonderful. there of Cross Research, the co-founder. Henrietta Trace joining us now, Director of Economic Policy at Vader Partners. Henrietta, great to have you with us on the programme. We'd love your thoughts on our latest reporting and the prospect of Phase 1, even Phase 1, breaking down at some point in the future. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, well, per usual, the reporting is amazing, um, and I completely agree. I, I would say that I think that China is basically confirming what the administration has essentially let on. A phase one deal is, in my opinion, really just acknowledgement that U.S. farmers and manufacturers are in a very real set of dire straits here, and the administration is being pressured extensively just to get us back to where we were in 2017. Um, I don't care about optics. I can't take it anymore, um, is the message from farmers. We're desperate. Uh, yeah. Give us $12 billion. We don't need 40. Uh, and for the president to come out and say random numbers that China's never confirmed, like 40 and $50 billion over a two-year window eventually, is essentially just admitting in different words that we're not going to get a grand, robust deal. Yeah. which is exactly what you're reporting and what China is indicating overnight. The most uh, significant part to me, Henrietta Trays, is the idea that to get to phase one, they have to agree on the parameters for phase two, even just the timeline, and that there isn't a meeting of the minds there. How significant is that? Um, well, I, I would love to say that it's significant, except for that I, I think that's what the tariffs are for. I don't think anybody has high expectations that, you know, every uh, other day they're going to be on the phone working diligently on a phase two. Indeed, one of the things that was most telling is that they picked all the low-hanging fruit and put it in basket one. And doing that creates a scenario where nobody, especially yeah. not China, would be incentivized to come back and continue negotiating with you. And that's what USTR Lifehizer believes is the purpose of tariffs. The purpose tariffs have a point, yeah. and the point is to force those conversations, whether a timeline exists or not. Um, and pre and by, uh, USTR Lifehizer believes that they've been right. working. Uh, futures at negative nine. I do want to point out the importance of this article. Both Maria over at Fox Business Squawk are talking up this Bloomberg story. Henrietta, as you mentioned within it, is the idea of the agricultural flattening of America. I've got you from Louisiana. I got Lisa Abramowitz from Fargo. I mean, the fact is, does a calendar play in here? Does winter play in here? Let me go to you, Henrietta, first. Does winter play? Does the, the seasons, do they play into this debate? Uh, the seasons in terms of planting certainly do, although that was really a September time horizon for the latest um, uh, crop that they were most concerned with. But when I think about phasing and timing, I think more about the politics. In my opinion, when you still have, you know, 12 plus Democrats in the presidential campaign and they can't get a cohesive, consistent message on trade, it's the best chance for President Trump to hit the pause button without expecting some unified national message from the Democratic Party to challenge his 
decision to hit pause. I want to be so clear I here believe- that we are hitting pause, Henrietta, that this phase one trade deal is still very much in play. And from the perspective of the markets, what matters here? And Henrietta, you weren't surprised by our reporting. I don't know anyone on Wall Street that was surprised this morning by our reporting. And I think that goes some way to explaining why the equity market is only down just a third of 1%. The risk here is that the Chinese and their refusal to budge on the bigger issue blows up the truce and the pause we have currently. Do you see that as a real risk in the coming months? I think that China holds all the cards here. So to that extent, absolutely. If China decides that they are better off um, blowing up the President Trump presidency and holding off until there's another Democrat in office and seeing what happens or just stalling, which has historically been their main negotiating tactic, that is entirely up to them. And the U.S. has pretty clearly illustrated that all they need right now are agriculture purchases. So accepting poultry, accepting Boeing jets, accepting more ethanol would be nice, but really we just need to get back to 17 and whatever the Chinese will throw at us. So they've seen that. I think this is mostly a political calculation on the part of China now. Do they want to throw President Trump a bone or not? Um, And it's entirely in their hands, not ours. When you talk about uh, the political pressures from the agricultural region, we talked about how bankruptcy surged 24 percent due to some of the uh, trade war concerns. And the recent bankruptcies concentrated in the 13 state Midwestern region, which is a key battleground for uh, President Trump's reelection. And I'm wondering, is there any analysis of how much a trade deal will uh, boost support in that region or whether the support of President Trump is independent, frankly, uh, and whether people are just happy that he's taking a hard line? Because I've heard that from some analysts. Yeah, I would say the bulk of the population out there, and you can see from the president's internal approval numbers within the party, is that he is very much doing the, you know, God's work with China in in a lot of their opinions. Yes, it's sitting in their pocketbook. And yes, historically, maybe if the economy was worse more broadly, that would be the only thing that they cared about. But if you look at polling data and see what voters care about, the economy is still high up there, but not as high as it was during the recession. So ironically, when the economy is good, people care less about it. The farmers are a different story, obviously, because the small farmers are going out of business, going into bankruptcy. Um, And one of the things we hear, and I know that Republicans on the agriculture committees here, is I don't care about list 4B tariffs because there's nothing China can do to make my life worse. It's already awful. And I think we've discussed that before. Um, So I think what President Trump is doing right here, right now, is making sure that he can create an off-ramp, you know, forget curbing uh, semiconductor sales and uh, curbing AI and visual and audio surveillance and all that stuff. Let's just get the farmers some soybean purchases, some pork, and that's what this phase one deal is doing. It's a complete capitulation on the part of the U.S. um, in terms of our long-term economy in exchange for just getting back to where we were two years ago. Henrietta, thank you so much. Henrietta Trace with Veda Partners. I've had an extraordinary set of conversations in the last 48 hours about two troubled companies in Europe, Fiat Chrysler and the very troubled French auto industry of Renault and Peugeot. And I can only take it back to my ute where the coolest thing in the neighborhood, John Farrell, was a what we called a Renault Dauphine. We, of course, mispronounced Renault. It was a Renault Dauphine. And there was a romance to these French cars. Lisa, did you ever have anyone cool in your neighborhood, the rich guy who had the Citroën? 
I grew up in Morningside Heights in the 1980s. Okay, yeah. so they didn't have a, a Citroen Morningside. My mom had a Renault 5. Yeah, exactly. We had a 65 it was very cool. Cool. She was very, very happy with it. Then she came home one day and my dad had sold it. Oh, and I, and I just remember. <clears throat> I just exactly. Rem- the, the window shook. Let's talk to an expert on the cool. He's Damien Flowers. Really quite good on European autos, the financials, the cultural, and the romance of it. Damien, let's start with that conversation as we ugly Americans see it. Is there any romance left anymore to Renault or Peugeot? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever been called an expert of the the cool before, but I'm but I'm flattered. Um, I think they're trying to restore some of their uh, romance into into Peugeot. I think some of the newer product <clears throat> is igniting some small bit of passion again in, yeah. uh, in the consumer. Uh, the, the, the 208 is one example, and the 308, they've been well received. But in the end, I think that what's driving the Peugeot product story is is emissions, right? In Europe, we've got to be compliant, so it's all about... Right, right, right. A little bit boring, but uh, cleaner. That's the necessity in, uh, in Europe. Well, the little boring is, is I would say, as a general statement, Peugeot's down the income statement margin is 300, 400 basis points different than General Motors. Are they affecting this merger because of revenue challenges, or are they affecting this merger to actually try to make more profit? Um, I think it is more the latter, right? I think for most car makers now, regardless of where they operate, there's not much growth in this industry. There's not many untapped markets to go and explore. China was kind of the last one. And look, it's moved into decline. So what's left, you've got to try and make cars profitably. And that means taking costs out. That is really the key rationale behind this merger. And the key place you want to take costs out, to your point, is Europe. Yeah, the US car makers, they're doing okay. North America is a relatively profitable market. There's huge money to be made in, in light trucks over there. In Europe, we don't have that. We've got these emissions regulations squeezing us. Um, it's hard to make money over here. Damien, what does it tell you this morning, this afternoon, into, into Milan, into Paris, that we see Fiat Chrysler up 8% in Italy and Peugeot down more than 12% in France? What's your takeaway? What's the signal from the price action? What it's not is it's not a judgment on, from the market on, on the, the sense of this deal, whether it makes sense. What it is, is, is it's the manifestation, it's us learning how the deal was structured, how the balance of power was allocated within the two parties at the point where they struck this deal. And clearly it was allocated more favorably um, in the direction of fiat. Uh, the shares tell you that. Um, this special dividend of five and a half billion that Fiat pays itself is very nice for, for Fiat shareholders. Um, Peugeot is having to contribute more than what we previously thought. Now, how did that balance get brokered? Well, ultimately, the Peugeot guy is going to be the guy running the new operation. So maybe to a degree, there's a price to be paid for that. I'm wondering, you know, by, paid by the Peugeot shareholders. So Tom was talking about romance and about the Renault in his neighborhood. And I wonder if the romance has shifted to electric, even though it's not that profitable and how important it is for these two companies to join forces to have the capital to invest in the new romance. That is, uh, that, that is absolutely the right observation in, in my view. Uh, romance is a nice way of putting it too, because if you look at 
Mm-hmm. You know, pick up any car magazine, yeah? There's such a disproportionate focus on electric. Go to any auto show, a disproportionate focus on electric yeah, yeah. relative to the actual number of cars that are being sold of that type. Uh, yeah. Electric is, in a way, the new premium, yeah? Um, it's maybe not there yet, but ultimately, in order to sell a product at a premium, it needs to be differentiated, and I believe that in the future, okay. electric is where the differentiation will will lie. So, yes, down the line, maybe right. they don't have to be there today from a profit perspective, but they need to get there, and that's not cheap. Volkswagen yeah. can get there because of scale. These guys have got to find their own way. Yeah, yeah. So the, the new scale. One way of doing it. Yeah, the new scale. Damien Flowers emerges. In, yes, exactly. Damien Flowers, thank you so much for Commerce Bank. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.